I believe that everybody has a fascinating story to tell. And nobody, if you ask the right questions, is really boring. Hi, I'm Brilliant, your host for this show. I know that I'm incredibly blessed. As the son of self-made billionaires, I've seen the high price some people pay for success, and I've learned that money really can't buy happiness. But I've also had the good fortune to learn directly from many of the world's leading teachers. If you're ready to be, do, have, and give more, this podcast is for you. Every one of us occasionally, at least, dreams of leaving modern life. Being alone, finding solitude, peace, being in nature, something like that. But very few of us actually act on it, at least for any sustained period. Well, my guest today, Mike Finkel, is author of The Stranger in the Woods, The Extraordinary Story of the Last True Hermit. It's the story of a man who lived alone in the woods of Maine for 27 years, never spent money, never lit a fire, said a single word to another human being, only encountered one person in all that time. It's an incredible book. As we discuss in this interview, I cried. When I read it, I found it deeply moving, very insightful. I learned a lot. Mike's bio reads more like Indiana Jones than a typical journalist. He's traveled around the world writing for a variety of magazines like the New York Times Magazine, National Geographic Adventure, Skiing Magazine, GQ Esquire. He has been a field, it's been on a field scientist study on a volcano in the Democratic Republic of the Congo, in caves in Nepal that are filled with ancient artifacts, hunter-gatherer tribes in Tanzania. He's visited and written about the high mountains of Afghanistan and seeking mushrooms in Tibet that are worth more than gold. Oh, and the illicit, like the black market human organ trade. So all kinds of fascinating things. A very curious learner, kindred spirit. I think you will enjoy, if you haven't read his book already, this The Stranger in the Woods, I think you'll probably really enjoy it. Uh, and I hope you enjoy this conversation with my new friend, Mike Finkel. Mike, welcome to the School for Good Living. I am honored to be here. Thank you, brilliant. Mike, will you tell me, please, what is life about? Uh, no, I will not. No, uh, I think everyone has to um, come up with their own definition of that. But I think um, I think it is. I think satisfaction. If I was going to just bring it down to one single word and not get too complicated, whatever makes you feel satisfied as as a, as slippery and multi-definitional a word that is, whatever it is that makes you feel content, unless it, of course it is ruining someone else's contentment and we, that'll be the exception to the rule. We'll get that, but whatever it is that makes you feel satisfied, then you're doing it right. Life that is. And for you, what is it that makes you feel content? Well, I'm a polyglot, so, uh, you know, it's not even just one thing. It's sort of a, I have a busy, you know, my, my life feels almost over full, as you just realized. You know, I have three children. I have a wife, but she's in the United States right now. I'm speaking to you from, from France. I have a, quite a full-time job, two dogs, and a lot of things going on. And so each day has its own little thread. And, I mean, you've heard this said a lot of times, but uh, I have to remind myself this probably hourly, which is to be present. You know, I have the tendency like many people to what's next, what's next, what did I just do rather than where am I now? I mean, as much as I like to write, as I like my job, as I like to be a father, as 
there's frustrations in all of those things. I, um, I've been blessed, I think, in the, in my, I just have been blessed to be able to sort of squeeze a little bit of goodness out of most, but not all situations, but most. So I'm sort of feeling present. And even if I'm like stuck in traffic and late to say an interview, I'm able to talk to my son about this. And he informed me as I was driving uh, late to, to this interview here that I was chewing my gum extremely loud. And we had a discussion about how I, I felt like I was sort of, it was making me think better somehow being able to chew that gum. And we had to turn off the radio so I could sort of center myself. So anyway, being present and seeking sort of satisfaction, even in the mundane, because life, of course, if life was, life can never always be extraordinary. It's really, if you're able to find satisfaction in the mundane, then I think you're really well on the way to living what I consider a really strong life. Awesome. Well, I wouldn't, when I hear you use the word mundane, and I know that every life has some ordinary moments to be sure, but that's definitely not a word that I would think would be uh, prominent in your life, this word mundane. Just reading your bio about traveling the world, uh, investigating, like following these incredible stories, whether it's about organ harvesting or about combatants in Afghanistan or potential you know, uh, slave workers in, in Africa or something. But tell me, so I've just teased a little bit of this perhaps, but who are you, at least professionally, if you want to answer personally, I'd love to hear that as well, but who are you and what do you do in the world? Well, yeah, I will answer that. But I think sometimes when people hear like this amazing resume on someone and feel like they, you know, this person, you know, travels the world and, you know, does all this philanthropy and has a family and this, I, you know, sometimes I feel like that's almost masking and you know, every, I'm, I'm a human being. I get jealous of that too. I'm jealous of everybody else's Facebook feed, of course. And, and I think that sort of masks reality. Anyway, so Mike Finkel, that's my name. I am a journalist uh, by profession and I really am passionate about it. So really I don't have a firm dividing line between my profession and my person. Um, I'm also a father. I have three fairly young children, although they're moving into teenage years. Um, I love to travel, and when I was younger and single, I traveled uh, sort of in a spastic way, and now that I have a family, it's more of a, a slightly mellower, slower way. We've decamped to France and have lived here for several years, and um, I'm very lucky that I get to write about subjects that grab me in my curiosity spot, and lately it's been like weird criminals, uh, scientific breakthroughs, and, you know, basically, you know, the astronomy and physics. So, uh, and when I was younger, it was, this, it was like skiing and sports, whatever sort of grabs me. I think one of the wonderful things about being a journalist is that um, you're able to, whatever makes you, whatever makes you passionate, you can pursue as a career. So it's really, when someone asks me, for example, Mike, you seem satisfied with your job. What, you know, what should I do for, for a living? The where I start always is, you know, if I gave you a million dollars, what would you do? And if money was not an issue, what would you do? And if they say, oh, I would ski and, you know, write uh, stories. I'm like, oh, maybe you should consider becoming a, a ski writer or something like that. And so, and so that is why I feel very blessed uh, because what I would do if money was no uh, object is not too dissimilar uh, to what I do now. 
I think I would have someone else maybe do a lot of the cleaning and gardening. But other than that, uh, I feel very, very lucky in that way. That's awesome. Well, tell me, tell me about your move to France, because I understand you grew up in Montana and that's across a very big ocean, <laughs> probably a very big change of pace from, from the life that you lived, at least in your younger years. What's that about? Yeah. So I, I, I guess you could say I grew up in Montana. I like to say that, but I have to say, having lived in Montana for 25 years, I can't claim Montana ship. You know, Montana is one of those states where if you're not born there, maybe even if your parents weren't born there, you can't really claim native status. I'm from the East Coast of the United States and went to high school in Connecticut and went to university in Philadelphia, but I always loved the Rocky Mountains. My family vacationed there. Uh, when I was growing up. And at 21 years old, I moved out to Bozeman, Montana, hoping to become a writer. Um, it's pretty inexpensive to live there compared to other places in the United States and was very fortunate that I was able to have a successful freelance writing career. I think it might be harder to do this right now, but this was 30 years ago. Um, met my wife who was from Florida. And for those of us who may be geographically uh, a little shortchanged. Florida and Montana do not have the same climate. And so Jill, my wife, was not happy after her first, seventh, or eighth winter in Montana. And uh, we decided to move to someplace warmer. And we're both fairly adventurous uh, travelers. My wife is a, a professor, but she does a lot of research. So she has a flexible job. I have a flexible job. And the south of France, somehow, by I wish I could give you like a logical reason. In fact, we only have an illogical reason. We really wanted our kids to learn a second language and we kind of wanted it to be Spanish, but somehow we ended up in France. Um, but that was more than five years ago. In fact, it was six years ago. And we didn't know if we would stay for more than six months, which was our minimum. And we, I didn't speak French when we moved here and I really got into learning the language and my children, uh, it took like six months in, we were just sort of figuring things out. And uh, I guess one six month period led to another and now we've done six years. Wow. I think uh, no one could accuse you fairly of being a short timer <laughs> with anything you do, it seems to me. But part of what to me is interesting in your life journey of, you know, moving and following your passions and making even making a career of it or moving your family, you know, to France and staying for six years and encouraging them or gifting them, however you might look at it with, you know, understanding another culture is this idea that you do things that many people only dream of. Many people think about, talk about, but never actually do. And one, and, and your subjects um, in, in some of what you've written about are that same way in particular. Uh, and uh, the reason I'm pausing here is I'm thinking about, you have some really interesting subjects in the books you write, right? And what's this thing about them being named Chris? Some of your <laughs> subjects being named Chris. Um, I do want to ask you about this. What's this thing about there's a murderer that took your name on, you began a correspondence, like it was made into a movie. This guy, right. Few people have experiences like that in their whole lives, I think. I'll try and uh, tell this story as, in, as briefly as possible. There's no secrets on the internet. So um, uh, very briefly, um, I was the writer for the Sunday New York Times Magazine uh, for a couple of years, and I was actually fired from that job. So I know ups and downs also. I don't want anybody who listens or watches this to think that, uh, you know, I do some sort of me meteor-like success story. Um, yeah, I, was, I uh, had a story assignment in West 
Africa. And I decided to combine a bunch of different uh, young boys. I was doing a story about slave labor, perhaps, on coca chocolate plantations. So slavery and chocolate were like the buzzwords. And uh, it was very complicated whether this was extreme poverty or whether these young kids who were picking coca beans, which is the raw ingredient for chocolate, were being um, abused or whether it was just very, very, very poor part of the world. And I combined a bunch of different interviews together to make one sort of through line. I thought it would be simpler for the reader or more appealing. And anyway, this is against the rules of journalism. I was caught for that. The New York Times is quite strict. And I was fired from my job, which was my dream job, which was to write long features for a, magazine, for a newspaper magazine that really gets, uh, makes a big a difference. And I was actually quite devastated. I was, I think, um, 30 years old. So it was more than 20 years ago. And I'm getting into the real story. The very day, basically, that I lost my identity, Mike Finkel of the New York Times, that's who I felt like I was, Mike Finkel of the New York Times, it was almost like my new last name of the New York Times. I was very proud of that. Um, I was fired. Didn't know if I would even get another writing job at all. I found out. This is, by the way, 100% true. There's no BS going on here. I found out that a man who was wanted for four murders, and not just four murders, four terrible murders of his wife and three children, had been running around in Mexico telling everyone that his name was Mike Finkel of the New York Times. In other words, at the very moment that I lost my identity, I found out that someone else had sort of taken it. Now, the two are not related, but this is absolutely true. Now, when I found out about this, of course, I was like, you know, I'm not, it's not like he chose like Stephen King or something like that. I'm just, I'm, I'm really not a very well-known name, but of course I was curious and the journalists were all like, well, this guy's not talking to anyone. He's, he's in jail in Oregon. He was um, extradited from Mexico brought to Oregon and he's not speaking to anyone. Everyone's trying. And I wrote him a letter saying I would just what I told you that I'd lost my job. I had made a mistake. I felt really wounded. And suddenly I found out that you took on my name. And of course I'm, horrified about these murders. But in the United States, as we all know, you're innocent until proven guilty. So you want to talk to me? I asked the other Mike Finkel, whose real name is Chris, uh, Chris Longo, and thus commenced a one-year, incredibly fraught, intricate, bizarre, fascinating, frightening uh, correspondence with a guy who was accused of these murders, claimed he was innocent, took on my name, told me that he would give me the scoop of the century and prove his innocence to me and I could redeem my name and become a journalist again. And I'm wondering if this guy's telling the truth or is a pathological liar. And it all got so twisted that I had to write a book about it, my first book, which I called True Story because it was about a pathological liar. And uh, that also became a movie. And so lots of weird things happened. And that was that is the most a uh, compact version of this very complicated story. It's yeah, it really is one of these that truth is stranger than fiction, isn't it? Only in now. fact, if it was, if I made it up, you would throw the book across the room and say, this isn't believable, but it actually is a hundred percent true. Anyway, that was my, that was my sort of launch into the book world, my transition from magazines into writing longer form. Yeah. And the, and the next book you wrote was the stranger in the woods, right? The extraordinary true story, the extraordinary story of the last true hermit. And I don't want to ask you to try to recreate the book because uh, 
you know, that would be unfair. <laughs> It'd be unfair to the listener. It'd be unfair to you. But I do want to ask you about the story behind the book. And, 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 and by the way, I just want to say this right here at the outset. Like, I love this book. This was something that I read, <laughs> uh, large passages to my wife. I cried at certain points when I read it, just recognizing, uh, the kind of box that we're asked to fit into in society, just with whatever social agreements, whatever society, you know, we're born into, but we all have our own individuality and we're sometimes asked to conform to things that aren't, they're probably not healthy. They're not comfortable. They're unpleasant. They're painful. They're difficult. But of course, some people opt out of that. So let me, let me just ask you if you will. Um, let me start by asking this even before we talk about the book, why did you, why did you write this book? Cause this took years, right? I mean, this was years. This was a big commitment. Of course. I think I mentioned earlier that I have like a curiosity receptor in me. I'm, I'm actually extraordinarily curious about a huge number of things, but I spend some of my uh, day, sometimes my work day is, is, is quite fun. Sometimes it's a burdensome, but like sort of reading small town newspapers online. And I read a very short piece, uh, apparently true. It's from a newspaper about a man who was uh, arrested, breaking into a summer camp. It was closed for the season, stealing like hamburger meats. And upon his arrest mentioned that he had been living all alone in the woods of Maine. If you know Maine, it's like Montana, extremely cold for 27 years in which he had one time encountered one human being and said a single syllable, which was, drum roll please, hi. Uh, and apparently had stolen like um, food and lots and lots of books and had been living in this campsite for more than a quarter of a century. And I just read this little thing and I was overwhelmed with questions. And if this sounds similar to this uh, previous story, you know, he, this is a person who hadn't spoken or spoke one word in 27 years. And once again, I, you know, I called up his lawyer. He, again, he was arrested for stealing minor things, but still breaking and entering. And so was being held in jail. And his lawyer, of course, said, you know, join the club. 500 journalists have gotten in touch. And I just felt a very powerful curiosity and weird, I'm going to use the word compassion, even though this is a criminal, um, and wrote him a letter. And I'm going to share with you one of, you know, one of my secrets in the world, which I have to give credit to my mother. When I was growing up, every time I had a birthday, my mother made me hand write thank you notes to everyone who came. And I don't think I ever liked it, but boy, I'm telling you right now, people who are listening in this day and age, when everyone texts and emails and video conferences, putting a pen to a paper. They used to have these things called envelopes and stamps. You should look them up. They still work. You can write a letter by hand and it makes such a difference, especially now when nobody writes by hand. Anyway, I wrote them by hand and I might've been the only one of the 500 journalists who was interested who wrote them by hand. And it might be as simple as that. And I also like to be very open about who I am and my curiosity. Anyway, this man who'd spent 27 years alone and was now in jail, also named Chris, Chris Knight, wrote me back. And I was concerned that uh, someone like that would just be crazy or non incommunicative. And I knew from this very first letter that uh, he was possibly, I mean, he's extremely intelligent, funny, which you don't expect a hermit to be, and had an insanely fascinating story to tell. And that, was, that also launched 
you know, so, I mean, that's like catnip for a journalist, but also it comes from a very genuine place. And I kind of think that some of the people I speak with understand that. Like, I, I really don't try to make someone look like a freak. I actually try to reach a point of empathy and understanding. And I'm hoping that maybe some of that came out in between the lines of my handwritten letter. Anyway, we started an epistolary, a letter writing relationship, which is a great way to meet someone who doesn't like to talk. Writing letters is a beautiful way to communicate. Been doing it, we've been doing it for you know millennia. And um, that again launched a several year project. And I just found this, and I'm went brilliant when you told me your reaction to the book, it really, really touches me because I too was quite moved by Chris Knight's story. You can almost like think about it and get all, and, and, and get teary. Uh, um, he's a very, very interesting man. But as you, as you intuited, yeah, the subtext is, the subtext of the book isn't just about this person, but where do we put people that don't really fit into the world? And I know a, a lot of my best friends are sort of outliers and we don't really have places for those. And almost all of those people feel very left out of the world. And so that is sort of the subtext of the whole story. And one of the reasons why the project so gripped me. Yeah. Yeah. And this, and all, all these things is, you know, like any great story does that it opens with this action sequence, right? As you talk about Chris breaking in and stealing food, when we talk about breaking, he'd had a key <laughs> over all these years of breaking into these cabins in Maine. He was very uh, smart about it. Didn't absolutely didn't want to hurt anybody. Didn't even want to encounter anybody. Didn't leave a track, but all these things about never getting sick when he talks about, of course, I didn't get sick. I didn't interact with other people, never spending money, never lighting a fire. As you said, saying a single word, like it's un unbelievable. And it's then you point out that he's within sight and sound of other humans, like unbeknownst. Right. And I don't want to give away the whole book because for anybody listening, if you've got a long weekend or a vacation coming up or whatever, like this book as a true story, but something that's also as good as any fiction you're going to pick up uh, is just absolutely fascinating. But where I'm kind of going just with sharing some of what was so amazing to me is I'm, I'm also really interested in, you talk about you had this letter writing, you know, relationship that he entered to, into somewhat reluctantly, right? When he was in jail, which I can barely imagine how that must have been for him to go from being in nature for 27 years by choice to the confines of this cell. And then you visit him. So in addition to writing letters, you visit him. And I'm curious, what was that like? What was your first meeting with Chris like? Yeah, I'll talk to you about, about that. And even as you were speaking, I was just thinking of this you know, year that everyone else on planet Earth has endured where there's been this forced solitude. I cannot tell you how many, how often, how frequently things that Chris Knight, the person who spent 27 years completely alone, like little advice and little thoughts that he had uh, imparted to me, which was so helpful uh, during during this year. I, you know, I'm a I'm a social person. My whole job is running around and talking to strangers in in foreign lands, and suddenly we can't talk to any strangers in person or travel. So yes, Chris Knight. Uh, for those of you who have never visited someone in jail, um, it's very stressful. It's uh, it's. You know, as you've seen, probably perhaps in the movie, you know, you're locked in like a little phone booth size size thing. Uh, and in, in the case with Chris Knight and with Chris Longo, the, the the murderer, you know, we're separated by bulletproof glass. We're talking in old fashioned scratchy phones and there's a limited amount of time. There's guards around. It's, there's a lot of banging and booming going on that you sort of can't see. 
And in that sort of stressfulness and pressure, I actually, I, I don't want to say I like it because that would be an incorrect word, but there's some truth that comes out. There's some reason that when you're facing like these extreme situations, I feel like you can't really BS somebody. There's some sort of like, you're sort of vulnerable, both of us, you know, I'm freaked out that I've, you know, I've had to be escorted into a jail. And of course the Chris Knight, who the man who wants to be alone is now literally locked in a cage with another person. He's vulnerable. And I believe that um, in that situation, a lot of truth bubbles up in the least expected spot. And this is why um, in the first book uh, about the murderer, almost every thing that I found very profound either came from a letter or a jail visit. Again, Chris Knight, and I'm working on another book now about a person who is obsessed with stealing works of art. And once again, there's been some jail time and some letter writing. And I just find in both of those situations, pen to paper, when, you know, when you're taking the time to do that, again, I feel like you're not really trying to con somebody. I feel like you can't help it. Truth comes out. And also in this pressure-filled situation of a jail, I feel like you're too vulnerable to really all your all your defenses come down and the, and the core of who you are comes out and whether you're a good person or a bad person, I think kind of shines. And in Chris Knight, the Kermit's case, I saw a decent human being wrapped in someone who was troubled. And in Chris Longo, the murderer, I saw a blackly horrible person wrapped in someone who was trying to be good. Wow. One thing I'm curious uh, if you're willing to kind of break down for me and people listening, I know this is maybe right down the rabbit hole, really esoteric. I'm not sure what practical value this would have for people beyond their curiosity, but I thought it was interesting in, in this book where you talk about there are three types of hermits, right? Historically. And, and one thing I love that I didn't know is that people in England used to pay hermits to live on their land. Like it was a sign of status or something to have a hermit come down and mingle at parties and things like this, which is not really a hermit at all, is it? But what are these what are these three types of hermits and what role have hermits played in our culture historically? Well, first thing I should say is that uh, if you want, uh, you mentioned that you have uh, some writers and, and, and people that um, hope to be uh, writers uh, uh, listening. And if you're at all interested in nonfiction writing, and I think this also applies to a lot of fiction writing. I love to research. I mean, come on, if you want to be a writer and you better love to read, I, I, I pretty much that's a given. I've never met a writer who doesn't like to read. So, uh, of course, not only did I want to interview Chris Knight, this hermit, but I wanted to see pretty much everything that was ever written about hermits, which is a, a lot. But I, I dove into research, and because I'm a spoiled brat and I take a lot of time with my projects, I spent, this is not an exaggeration, exaggeration one year researching hermits, read a couple of hundred books, tens of thousands of articles. And then I tried to categorize. Sorry to, to interrupt there, Mike, but I just want to, before that goes any further, I loved too that your research was getting on a forum for hermits. There is such a thing. <laughs> yeah, hermitary.com. Come on, guys. Go to hermitary.com. Actually, I found it to be very beautiful. Uh, the person who runs hermitary, and I respect this, uh, determines whether or not you qualify as a hermit before you are allowed to go into the chat rooms. And as I mentioned before, although I'm a journalist and I'm no... Uh, you know, I'll ask you four or five times and I don't take no once or twice as an answer, but I also try to be open and honest. I did not qualify 
for the hermit chat rooms and I respected that entirely. But yes, hermitary.com is the forum for hermits. So it's a great resource. Uh, so I read all these books and I really tried to, when I'm doing the three categories, that's sort of my own way. This is like, this is what I like about writing a book. I'm just sort of breaking things down how my head got around it. Uh, so the first one we can get out of the way fairly quickly, but it's the biggest category, which is religious hermits, which is huge. I mean, I think anybody thinks about people spending time alone uh, religion has to come up. I mean, Jesus spent 40 days in the Judean desert before he started uh, gathering his apostles. And Muhammad was alone in a cave in Mecca when the angel Gabriel started dictating the Quran. And Buddha was under, all alone under a tree in present day India when he achieved nirvana. So, I mean, that's just that only 3 billion people follow those religions now. So uh, anyway, religion. Uh, the second thing is sort of like, you know, when you think about, I think people talk think about Thoreau, especially since he also spent a lot of time in Maine and the hermit that I wrote about spent time in Maine. And that's sort of more of like a, a seeker, like you're, you're seeking enlightenment, you're seeking knowledge, you're seeking an experience. And then the third category is people that just reject the world entirely. I'm protesting a, uh, I'm protesting war or poverty or most a lot of there's a lot of hermits that protest um, environmental destruction so we have like the the pilgrims as i call the religious ones the protesters and the uh there's the third category which also started with a p but it's not coming to my mind right now but the ones that are uh seeking um uh you know sort of a breakthrough yeah, artistic the, breakthrough the pursuers i think you called thank them. you I, i'm the one who came up with that and i still forgot it i've it's you yeah. know it's, 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 it's afternoon here in France. <laughs> yeah. So what type of hermit was Chris? Yeah. So, so, so first of all, I make this category that everything fits in. And then, of course, the one dude I'm writing well doesn't quite fit into any of them. This, uh, this is one of the things that, I, you know, you asked me if I could spend a couple of years on a project. You know, I'm going to say something about Chris Knight that I think that all of your listeners are going to say, no, that's not true. And then I'm going to say to them. We'll come up with a counter example. Chris Knight, right here in the 21st century with 7 billion people on earth and all of us connected to our smartphones, I posit, no, I say, is the most solitary known human who has ever lived. Now, the accent should be on the word known. Is it possible that someone lived longer and we just never found out about him? Yeah, I'm going to give you that. But known hermit, I researched fanatically for one year. I mean, you could start coming up with, you know, um, with uh, Christian saints. And I would say all of those Christian saints, even if they spent like 40 years in a cave, had people coming to take lessons from them, had people coming to bring them food. They wove baskets. They had people coming to sell them in town. This guy was all alone for 27 years. He is beyond category. He is an outlier beyond all outliers and also highly intelligent and willing to talk to me. And I found that irresistible. And he was such a prickly, interesting, intelligent, unusual person that, uh, you know, I, I can talk about him for a while, but he was a genuinely true hermit, sort of, let's just call him, as they say in France, when something's too difficult, it's or category, it's out of category. So he's sort of the outlier uh, of outliers. Yeah, no doubt. Now there's some people that don't believe his, that he did what he says he did. Do you? Well, first of all, if you don't believe what he says he did, I don't blame you because it's not believable. It's unbelievable. Like the true, truest sense of the word. Do 
I believe uh, what he said, which is a person who spent 27 years all alone in Maine, uh, not just camping out, but never, listen to me, people, especially you campers out there, never lit a fire. To me, that is mind boggling. I'm, I'm an outdoor aficionado and Maine is really cold for a long time. And I love to have a campfire. Uh, so if you don't believe that this guy did this, I completely acknowledge that. However, I am 100% sure, I'm not even 100% sure that the sun's gonna rise tomorrow morning, but I'm 100% sure that this guy said, did what he did for several reasons. And the quickest one is that truly Chris Knight did not want any publicity. He didn't even want me to write a book about him. He acquiesced because so many journalists got in touch and he realized that if he didn't speak to one, he would be hounded for all his life. And I sort of understood this dynamic, this guy. And then as soon as we were done talking, we have never spoken again. He did not want to be my friend. Uh, he was done with me. This is a person who wanted no publicity. The only reason to lie and to make something up is because you want attention. This guy did not want it. He has no reason. And then of course I spent well, it's been four years since the five years since I started the project. I wanted someone to show me one shred of evidence that anything that he had, that anything he said was not true and no one has come up with it. So I invite anyone to bring me some evidence. It's, it's just, uh, it, this man did do what he said. And if you don't believe it, as I said, I completely understand, but sorry, you're wrong. Yeah. What do you see is, well, before I move to this question, I, I just want to share like, where you capture some of his words verbatim, right? So you relate in the book. So we get to learn, we get to hear Chris's voice through your writing. And one of the things that he wrote or that you wrote that he said was years were meaningless. So this is Chris saying years were meaningless. I measured time by the season and the moon. The moon was the minute hand, the seasons, the hour hand, right? And this relationship to nature that in some ways to me was very like, animalistic, right? Where he would store fat for the coming winter. He knew, of course it was coming and he his goal was to get fat and then to survive and to still have some fat on him. Some years he did, some years he almost died. Just really amazing. And, and of all the things he never did, a fire, money, talking to people, whatever, never prayed except when it got super cold and prayed for warmth, right? And that whole thing, there was just like you were saying about being in the jail cell with someone and there's almost like a a clearing where truth shows up in a way that it doesn't tend to for us in day-to-day -day living, normal interaction, right? And there was something in that quality of him just talking about being in nature, being part of nature, surviving. That was so, that was part of what touched me so deeply was that I think humans probably lived that way for hundreds of thousands of years. And now we've got all this covering, all this comfort, all these conveniences that that have shielded us from that memory, you know, in some ways. So if there's a question that follows from this, it's what, what lesson, assuming there's one, and I know there's probably many and everyone has their own and things like that, but what can we learn from Chris? Yeah. First of all, thank you so much for reading that line. I did actually get a few goosebumps when you're reading it. When, when, he, if, uh, first of all, I want to do one thing, which is to uh, publicly here. Thank Chris Knight for speaking to me. If the book is any good, it's only because, Chris Knight spoke to me so beautifully, eloquently, and openly. And uh, if he does happen to listen to this, 
thank you, Chris. I could never really thank you enough. Uh, secondly, yeah, I mean, this is one of the joys of being a journalist. Maybe I'm, I'm actually maybe not a very good writer. I maybe just people say really beautiful things to me and I, and I write them down. Uh, yeah, when he said the moon is the minute hand and the seasons are the hour hand, God, it's just pure prose poetry. And I tell you, I look at the moon every night and think about that line often. Look, there's the minute hand. And you know, last night it was just what I call like a toenail clipping, just a tiny little sliver of moon here in France. And so I know it's, you know, I, I kind of keep track of that. And it's just a, a beautiful thing. And as you, Brilliant, just hinted at that we've sort of sort of lost track of this natural timepiece of moons and seasons and I feel like within what you were just saying was that we all are in somewhat of a mad rush to do something. And if you, if there's one lesson that Chris Knight, uh, that I'd love that for him to impart it to everyone, not just me. Now, this last year has been a little, a little unusual, but in general, I do feel that society is burning itself up in this, in this sort of like mad rush. And, and all, all the things that are supposedly there to save us time, I think have only made us feel more harried and more rushed. I feel like, you know, something like text messages, which I thought, oh, that saves me a phone call. Now my freaking phone is binging off the hook. I had to silence it for this thing. I'm sure there's like eight messages there. And I'm telling you, there's a little dopamine receptor in my head that wants to go check those messages. I'm just like everyone else. I am truly addicted to my phone. This is what I'm gonna ask everyone to do. And it's easy, the easiest thing in the world to do. And at the same time, almost impossible, which is to do nothing. If you could do nothing for 15 minutes a day, that is really difficult. Let's start with two, two minutes a day of nothing. Now, if you'd like to pray, if you'd like to meditate, that's fine. So nothing can be in there, but this is what you need to do. You need to put down your phone or, or your computer or, or even your iPad, iPod, just take away music and just, you can be in the middle of New York City or in the middle of Yellowstone National Park, but if you just stop and do nothing for two minutes a day, and just, I like to go, when I'm doing my nothing, I'm actually, of course, my brain is still working and no one can turn off their brain. I do this little, what I call the sense check. I go through all of my senses. What am I seeing? Which is easy. What am I hearing? What am I feeling? What am I smelling? What am I tasting? And then I sort of go Zen, which is I let out, you know, after I've done my sense check, it's sort of my like transition from the world to the nothing. And then I just be 90 seconds. I mean, I got three kids, I got dogs. They can be shouting my name. The dogs could be barking. I could be late for something. And I'm just going to stand my ground for the next 75 seconds and do nothing and just take it in. I'm late. That's fine. I take it into my mind. My youngest child, you know, if it's a if it's a true cry of distress, of course, I'm not going to I'm not going to sit there and do nothing. But I'll just take it all in. And it really if you're at all like sort of um, beset by modern life. And I felt it today, even just like I said, running to this interview, which is why I'm so glad we sort of took a nice breath before we started. If you feel beset by modern life, if you could start with two minutes a day, I think of the whole world of all 7.9 billion of us took two minutes a day to do nothing but center ourselves. We would, the whole temperature of society, I think you understand what I mean by that metaphorically, the temperature of society would drop an essential degree or two. And we'd all just get along a little better. Yeah, That's absolutely. That's what he <laughs> and, and I think we enjoy life a little more too, right? 
So the benefit yeah. manifold, and that's not a word I get to use in conversation. So thank <laughs> you. <laughs> yeah. Well, and, and that I love to what, uh, what Chris said about Thoreau, that Thoreau's a dilettante, <laughs> uh, which after reading your book, I, I tend to agree. So. Well, he's also a brilliant writer. I tried to read, um, I think I was too young. The first time I, I might've been assigned it in high school. Um, so for those of you who were maybe tried to read Walton, um, I didn't get very far the first time. And the second time it blew me away. And so I recommend you come back to it. But I thought it was, you know, Chris Knight, the hermit. I, I just, this is a person I just, I guess what happens if you spend 27 years alone this sort of what I call the, I call it dinner party politeness, because no matter how good or bad a meal tastes, you tell the host that it was delicious, of course. And if it's a lie, well, that's a fine, that's a dinner party lie. I don't even tell my children, they must always tell the truth, except after a dinner party when you tell them it was delicious. Um, or when someone asks how they look in those jeans, you say, beautiful. Um, anyway, he lost that ability to white lie. And so he thought, he thought that Henry, you know, Henry David Thoreau was a, a dilettante. As you said, he lived only two years at his uh, cabin on Walden Pond. His mother did his laundry. True. He had a dinner party with 20 people. And worst of all, he wrote a book bragging about this. And, you know, this is something Chris Knight, the hermit would never do, write a book. And so uh, I found it, I, I you know, he made fun of me a lot. You know, he's like, oh, look, you're balding, Mike. Or, you know, and I, I my son's name is uh, Beckett. And he's like, Beckett, terrible, terrible name. He's going to hate you when you get older. And he's like, and I kind of like loved it and like hated it because I'm thinking, oh, how many of my children? I told them, you know, I named my son Beckett. And they're like, oh, great name. But in thinking in the back of their head, oh, terrible name. But he just came right out with it. And, you know, not everyone, not everyone's going to be like grooved to that. But for some reason, I it made me like him all the more and uh yeah so uh oh and by the way this came up to me you mentioned briefly in passing that the uh if you don't mind me skipping around it's sort of a sort of, of a, um i wanted to talk about the english uh the, the the name of the uh the hermits that these english um upper class decided to have on their large properties which is, i love this name ornamental hermits, ornamental hermits. By the way, there's even a whole book on it. This is a true thing where people hired hermits to live on their vast estates, usually in a cave, and they would come out and greet guests. I'm not kidding. They were, uh, they were like seven-year contracts. And uh, yeah, they, they, the, the aristocracy for um, a while uh, thought that hermits radiated wisdom and peacefulness and that it was good to have one on your estate. Uh, ornamental hermits. If you're, I, totally by the way, I like your beard. I think you, I think you, I think beards were actually mandatory. Uh, brilliant. So, like, if 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 this yeah. isn't working out for you, I'm just saying you could bring back the or, um, you know, I can see it. You. Yeah, that is so great. There was, so, <laughs> there was so much in the book there. I I just loved some things that were really deep and some things that were just simple and funny. But, Such is life, isn't it? You got to yeah, have both. That's right. Well, before we, before we transition, um, oh, I do want to ask you this. What did you learn about interviewing that served you well when you interviewed Chris? Because I, I don't know if people get this, if they picked it up from the conversation. You talked about Chris talked to you reluctantly. There were many people that he said no to. He said yes to you, probably because of the handwriting and so forth. But there were some techniques that I think you touched on and you revealed. Not that they were like ploys or techniques or something, but... How did you get him to open up? Like, what had you learned 
about interviewing before that served you well? And then my follow-up question is, what did you learn about interviewing from interviewing him? Okay, so interviewing is definitely a, a an art or a skill. I mean, there are definitely people that are better conversationalists than others. And I think people that are drawn to journalism are just naturally not shy of talking to people. But for example, uh, I know, Brilliant, how much you prepared for this interview. And I knew within five seconds, I do several interviews and I know immediately one's level of preparation. And so the secret of almost everything in life is... Uh, secret preparation prepare you know nobody just comes out speaking beautiful french without a lot of work i i mean i i think about like michael jordan uh almost all of his teammates said he was the first one at the gym practicing the guy that was the best was actually you know none of this stuff you know almost almost everyone that's great or very good at what they're doing spends a lot of time doing this so i like my interviews to feel natural but that takes a lot of preparation. And I bet you know what I'm talking about, Brilliant, because you are good at it. And um, so I prepare a lot, I read a lot. I don't like to have a list of questions where I'm looking down and looking up. Uh, I like it to feel like a conversation. So I will prepare a lot. I will sometimes write 50 or 60 questions and then I'll read that list. And then I will leave that list in my car when I'm going to the jail and bring nothing with me but a bunch of curiosity and just see what happens. You know, I don't like to leap. Uh, sometimes I'll leap weirdly from one subject to another, but I want it to feel like a conversation. And also, as I've mentioned before, and as I will mention again, I think almost everyone can sense <clears throat> someone is genuine or false. And when I'm talking to someone, I would say 90% of the time, so one in 10 times, I'm just BSing and false, but I'm genuinely interested in hearing what you have to say, and that can't be faked. So uh, if you're not a genuinely curious, open-minded person, maybe this journalism isn't for you, but I, even someone who's like as disgusting as a murderer, not just a murderer, like I mentioned, maybe murdered his kids, not to give it away, he was guilty, and I thought so, I still was curious genuinely while also very much repulsed. And so I think there's a genuineness that you can't teach. And after that, there's a lot of preparation. Um, I think it takes a lot of effort to make it feel like it's effortless. In fact, one of my favorite compliments that someone will give to me is someone would be like, oh, you must've wrote that book really quickly because it just felt very natural and conversational. And I'm like, thank you. you know, and it, took, it, it takes a long time to make it feel like it didn't take very long to write. That's the yeah. dirty secret. Yeah, absolutely. Well, then there were some specific things that you talk about in the book about, uh, you didn't use these words, but like matching and mirroring and pacing. And like when he would look past you and you would look past him and you would let the silence, you know, you would match his cadence and things like that. Did, I mean, you, you were aware of it enough to include parts of that, but how much of that when you're, so you talked about your prep and you talked about, you know, leaving the notes in the car and things like that, but now you're, face-to-face -face in the moment, right? How do you build rapport with somebody? How do you, how do you get them to open up? How do you encourage them or direct them and things like that? What, what have you found that works well or what worked well with Chris? Well, also, I think we should all know that um, human interactions, and this is a person, Chris Knight, of course, is, it, as I mentioned, he's an extreme outlier. And one of the reasons why he basically became a hermit is that he just couldn't connect with other human beings. It made him feel so uncomfortable. And one of the things that I think about is that human interaction Right now, what we're doing is complicated. It really is. It's like a tennis game. Um, not only am I trying to come up with 
good responses. And I like, you know, I'm even thinking right now, oh, I think my answers are too long and I'm hogging up too much of it. You know, that's actually going on in the back of my head. And I'm looking at you. Are you making a lot of gesticulations? I'm, are you making this weird look that I'm making? I mean, you moving your head? Maybe I should stop moving my head. So listen, I'm giving, you ask me what's going on. Like I, all these little things are going on in the background. And so, uh, you know, you, I think it's natural to try and mirror something like if you were sitting there and I suddenly started doing jumping jacks and calisthenics while we were talking, it would be very jarring. Um, and so I think the first thing that anyone should know is that it, if you're feeling like it's complicated, well, then you're right. It is complicated. And I do feel naturally that you should try and put someone at ease, especially if they're talking about themselves. And so I noticed with Chris Knight that, uh, you know, we were very close to each other, uh, but when there was a piece of glass, he didn't, he didn't want to meet my eyes. He looked over my shoulder and I decided, you know, I, I'll, I'll take a look at his eyes briefly, but then I'll look over his shoulder. And I remember the very, very, very first time he just sat there quietly. And I thought about his letters, you know, he said to, he said almost exact quote, I don't trust people that are uncomfortable with silence. Well, I'm gonna tell you right now, I'm extremely uncomfortable with silence. It's very uncomfortable. I am not one of those guys who like fills in spaces and conversations and end up saying something kind of dumb because I don't really like it. I'm like, oh, oh, I probably should just shut up. So I like had to consciously, like the equivalent of sitting on my hands, like biting my tongue, very close to literally biting my tongue. I was like, I'm gonna sit here in this silence because Chris Knight wants it. And yeah, you're right. There are like little cues mirroring and, you know, even the cadence of the other person's voice. I tend to get really excited and speak loudly and have like lots of inflection waves. And I, if the person who I'm speaking to is a kind of a flat voiced person, I try to mirror that. But also again, out of politeness, I don't want to be who I'm not. So mm -hmm. You know, again, you, we can really break this down to the nitty gritty. And the only thing I'm going to try and say, this is one of the nice things about getting old. I'm in my 50s now, is that I, rather than feeling like, oh, my God, this is, uh, I, I, I screwed it up. It's actually kind of a difficult thing to interact with somebody uh, that you haven't met. And so if you feel like you've screwed it up, I think that you're being kind of perceptive. Like, if, yeah. you, if you feel like you never screw up an inter in interaction with someone, then you're probably not a very perceptive person. Yeah, not not self-aware, right? This wire out. I'm gonna put it in. On um, okay. <clears throat> yep. <laughs> yeah. It, human interaction is complicated, right? And I thought I think a lot about what what Chris said about it's hard to look at faces because there's so much information there. You know, it's really interesting. I know okay. it's hard to look at my own face when I'm talking to you. This is like this newfangled thing. I'm like trying not to. And then I'm like, I feel like I'm feeling all this crookedness and like, you know, it's mirror imaging. And so like I'm moving my head one way. And the other. Yeah. I mean, we can talk about this stuff. This is like new. I'm used to like doing, doing interviews in person. Um, the last year has sort of uh, turned everything upside down. Um, do other people look at themselves or the other person when they're on a video? I don't know. It's like, what do you look at? Yeah, it's challenging. I find, you know, I, my tendency is to look at the at the video, the person I'm speaking to, but then I realize there's no eye contact. And in fact, it looks like it's such a, it's so interesting. It's, it's a weird seam, I think, of time. Right. I'm trying to make eye contact with you and I feel like I sort of am, but it's not clear. Yeah. yeah. I think yeah. it's totally fair to talk about this, right? I mean, I think this is, you mentioned at the outset of your show that there are people that are interested in being writers. And I think these are I never talk about this kind of stuff. It's almost a little uh, meta, but I, I like it. Um, you know, 
conversation. Life is challenging and you're going to mess up like a hundred times a day if you want to get to the granular, you know, nitty gritty. And it's all about sort of like getting past that in a weird way. Yeah, no doubt. I think the last thing I, the last thing I know I want to ask you about related to Chris, something else might pop up, but it's about, uh, it's, it's about when he talks with you about the lady of the woods. Would you be willing to share what that conversation was like? So um, as mentioned, I began my relationship with Chris Knight, the, the hermit, uh, by writing letters. Then it progressed to visiting him in jail and we spent a nine one hour jail visits. And then he was released after seven months in jail. And then finally, after all this time, I visited him in person, no letter writing, no jail at his home. He invited me to visit him. And we stood outside under a lilac tree that was just blooming. And so the smells were beautiful. It was spring in Maine. Spring comes very late and very powerfully. So everything felt like hyper colored. The green was very green and flowers were flowering. And I had gotten the impression that Chris Knight, uh, who's a true survivor, uh, was thriving because that is what his, um, basically his counselor said and his lawyer said. And, you know, he was telling me his life story in jail, but wasn't really telling me about his present situation. I don't think he felt comfortable doing so in jail. And so we went and we met in his backyard and he told me that uh, he was struggling mightily and that the good face that he had put up uh, in jail and to his therapist and lawyer was really a false front and that he felt that the reason why he escaped the world was that he felt like a square peg being pounded into a round hole. And now here he was 27 years later, literally living with his mother, a person who had never done drugs, forced to do drug testing, uh, basically a system that wasn't built for an outlier. He was being forced in there. And I felt at this moment, now this is a person who spoke to nobody. And this is about as open as a human can be. And then he even got further open. He said that he was really, he was going to commit suicide. He was going to kill himself. He really, you know, he, he, he would, had been breaking into people's houses. He spent seven months in jail and his terms of his probation was that if he was ever caught again, he would spend seven years in prison. Um, and he's not a natural law breaker. And so he wasn't going to break the law, but basically he was forbidden to do the only thing that made him happy in the world was living alone in the woods. He couldn't hunt and fish for a living. Uh, Maine is way too difficult. And so he felt trapped that he would either have to suffer in society or face seven years in prison. And he saw no way out of it and um, was going to commit suicide. And he said that one time when he was extremely cold, hungry, and at the depth of sort of winter that he almost died in the woods and he had a vision or not that a, um, you know, you think about death as a, um, the uh, anthropomorphization woo, of death is like a guy with a Sith. Uh, anyway, he had a female version of this that he called the lady of the woods. Uh, he said he was in his tent, freezing, starving, uh, right at the depth of cold in, in late in his 27 years. And had this, again, he's still not sure if it's real or not. And as you mentioned before, this is a person who's not formally religious. Uh, he doesn't have a formal religion, but uh, 
that's what he said. He said he was going to walk again with the lady in the woods. So um, he had seen this vision of death and got very close to it. And even a person who's highly logical, which Chris is, like he's the person who's like, uh, you know, if you can't prove it to me, I won't uh, believe it, which is why he's not religious, uh, said that he to this day couldn't tell you whether the lady of the woods is real or not. And I, I really actually kind of I kind of like that. So anyway, the, the, the story came up with, you know, when, when he was being his most open with me. And I do think about the Lady of the Woods myself, not that I have any intention of committing suicide, but I thought, um, I thought it was a very beautiful and poetic and powerful way to speak. And when I think about the Lady of the Woods, I think about it was the moment that I was able to have a really true soulful moment with Chris Knight. And then he closed back up soon afterwards, but I will never forget that. Yeah. <clears throat> that was a part that was particularly, that was a part that was particularly touching. And when I said I cried, it was, it was that, and that feeling of being trapped. And, and if I, I made it, the way you wrote it, I thought was so profound. This, this paragraph, Chris says he's seen the lady of the woods before during a very bad winter, his food was finished, his propane used up and the cold was unrelenting. He was in his bed, in his tent, starving, freezing, dying. The lady appeared. She was wearing a hooded sweater, a feminine Grim Reaper. She lifted an eyebrow and lowered her hood. She asked if he was going with her or staying. He says he's aware on an intellectual level that it was just some fevered, desperate hallucination, but he's still not entirely sure. Just, and then to say that he's going to go find her again, right? That's the method of suicide. It's not, it's not going to hang himself. He's not going to shoot himself. He's going to go be with the lady of the woods. And wow, that's so... Don't mean to ruin <laughs> anything in the no, book. No, no, it's beautiful. In fact, I, again, when you were reading that, I was thinking, thank you, Chris, again, because really, um, I would love to take credit for a lot of that, but that's really just the way he spoke. I really just uh, channeled his uh, words. I mean, I don't think it's direct quote, but really that's basically the way he told me the story. And uh, that's why I feel blessed to have a job that I do because you can't really get to meet someone like Chris Knight unless you're really willing to spend like a couple of years doing it and nobody could afford to spend a couple of years doing that unless they are lucky enough to be a journalist so um yeah. even when you were reading it back it made me it made me it made me really uh, miss miss Chris Knight as I as I mentioned um he's a true hermit he didn't want to be my friend and I would welcome welcome a letter from Chris Knight any day but uh the way the deal that we left was he would tell me his story and when he was finished uh, I would go on my way and he said, if he ever wanted to get in touch, he would get in touch. And it's been a couple of years and he, he hasn't. And I can't, I, I respect that entirely. And I will never knock on his door uninvited again or at all. Yeah. But I'll take an invitation, Chris. <laughs> well, you mentioned earlier that your next book project is about, it's also about a criminal. <laughs> There's also been some correspondence, but um, why, Tell, tell us, if you will, a little bit about this next project and, and why, you've, why you've decided to devote so much of your time and energy to this. Yeah, once again, I think for people out there that are interested in writing, I think one of the, un, um, I'm not saying unteachable, but one of the skills that are sort of uncelebrated is picking a topic. I'm not sure if like anybody has a how to pick a topic uh, class, and certainly nobody taught me one. And I just think, um, as I said, I'm curious about many, many, many things. But when it comes to, as you so uh, 
God, I almost felt a little bit of pressure, brilliant, when he's like, you're, you know, you're putting years on this, you know, I, I, but you're right. I am. I'm throwing a lot of eggs in one basket. I'm not making money for quite a while. And I have a, I have a family uh, that I'm supporting. Um, so yes, I, um, I can't say with scientific reasoning why a subject grabs me. It's all, it's very emotional, but one of the, some of the, let's just get down to some of the nitty gritty, which is first of all, the person that I'm interested in has to be willing to, to talk to me. If, uh, if, if, uh, if I write them a letter and they say, or no, thank you, or don't respond, then I'm not writing about them. And that does happen. You don't read, you're not reading a book about my failures because they're failures. And they, just like I said to you, uh, uh, a lot of work goes in in the background that you don't see. Uh, there are a lot of failures uh, that you don't, that I'm not talking about here on your show. But uh, I had, again, I had followed this story for a better part of a decade, which is about a man who was stealing artwork from museums in Europe. He's French and I happen to speak French. So it was a good advantage for me. And again, for, for people out there who are, who are thinking about being journalists, think about advantages that you have. Like if you are an expert in knowing about geology, then you could interview a geologist more readily than I could. Uh, anyway, so I, he, he does speak English, he speaks French. And so we, we interviewed each other, well, I interviewed him in, in, in French, but he stole art and put it on the wall of his when I'm going to say house, he lived with his mother. He was a waiter and broke, and he had he lived in the uh, attic of his mother's house and ended up having, I'm not going to exaggerate here, some people estimated it as $2 billion worth of art. Now, if you go looking uh, for art thieves and you find someone who broke into 10 different museums in their career, 10, that is about as much as you'll find in history, except for the guy I'm writing about who broke into more than 200 different museums in his career. Uh, so we're again, like Chris Knight, an extreme outlier, but the real true reason that I'm writing about him is that he stole not for money, which 99% of art thieves steal, he stole for love and is like, in like has this crazy cockamamie, beautifully, <sighs> illogical theory about aesthetics, about love, about, about attraction to objects and people and put these pieces of art in his attic and I'm going to say the word worship them. Probably a second draft probably come up with a better one, but really like love them in a way that is inordinate, loved these pieces. And, um, I don't usually like being a tease, but I'm still working on this project. So all I'm going to say is um, what happens in the end, you'll never guess. And it's shocking. Wow. When, when, do you, when will it release? Well, I'm uh, working on it. So let's say the summer of next, not this summer of 2021. Let's go for about a year, a year and a half from now. It takes a little while for things to wind their way up. Um, uh, I'm a little late on a deadline, so brilliant. Stop it. You're, giving, you're making me feel a little pressure here. Uh, I should actually get off of this interview and write the next sentence, but we'll stay for the time being. Yeah, I'm a little late. I feel a little pressure, and I'm sort of this like tug of war between speed and quality. And, you know, you can't just spend – I personally cannot spend 20 years writing a book. I can't afford that. Um, and so, you know, writing for, for people that are out there, there is not my wife is a mathematician and I'm jealous of her because when you do a math problem correctly, it's just done. Yeah. You can give me 
every paragraph I've ever written, you give me a couple of weeks, I'll make it a little bit better. So there's never perfection and I want it all to be perfect. And I, you know, I, I live with the knowledge that I am pursuing perfection in an, it's just like interacting with another person, brilliant. I'm sure when I'm done with this, I will think about a hundred things I should have told you and how I could have been a little more succinct and not so hogging of my time. And so self-criticism, and again, you know, everyone's self-critical in their own way. And it's also not bad to be self-critical and also, let it go because I'm coming with you with a full intention to give you my best. And I, if I failed, then I'm, I apologize, but I have intention to do it. Thank you. And it, and it shows <laughs> the working title for that, for the new book. I think we're calling it the master thief as in masterpiece with a master thief. Mm -hmm. um, and I, I really, again, as with Chris Knight, the hermit, not so much the murderer, but as with Chris Knight, he's sort of a, Oh, someone who's hard to like, and I like him. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. Awesome. Okay. Well, with your permission, I want to go ahead and transition us to the enlightening lightning round. I'm a little scared you? about this. Let's, let's do it. <laughs> no pressure. All right. How are you doing? Are you doing okay? Yeah, I feel great. Thank you so much. You, this is transitioning between my work day and my relaxation. Awesome. Well, good. Okay. Coming down the stretch. So again, this is a, uh, Series of questions on a variety of topics. You're welcome to answer as long as you want. My aim for the most part is to ask the question and stand aside. Might ask you to elaborate here and there, but that's the design. So question number one, please complete the following sentence with something other than a box of chocolates. Life is like a. Man, let's see. I'm trying to answer this with something good. You've got me already. I can't believe it. I've like failed already. Uh, life is like, life is like, I'm going to give you something here. You're going to have to give me a second here. I don't even like life is like a box of chocolates, by the way. I think that's almost a little bit too easy. But uh, see, one of the advantages of being a writer is that you're not on the spot. You get to think and cogitate for a while and you come up with this brilliant line, but it's, you know, it's after like your 15th draft. <clears throat> Life is like this entire, like this, I'm picturing this, like um, I've just been studying the human brain for a while and neurons, like everything branches out into like a million things and like every single choice, um, opens up into another one. So, you know, life, I, I'm just sort of picturing this, like um, you ever seen like a field of lightning where every choice, you know, cracks into another life is, life is infinitely complex, but you have to choose one path through it. Okay. Thank you. Question number two here. I'm borrowing the technologist and investor, Peter Thiel's famous question. What important truth do very few people agree with you on? I believe that everybody has a fascinating story to tell and nobody, if you ask the right questions, is really boring. Okay. Thank you. I, I tend to agree with you on that, by the way. Question number three, if you were required every day for the rest of your life to wear a t-shirt with a slogan on it or a phrase or a saying or a quote or a quip, 
what would the shirt say? Let's go with, um, if in doubt, the answer is yes. I love it. Awesome. Thanks. Okay. Question number four, what book, what book other than one of your own have you gifted or recommended most often? I like to, um, I gift the book. I like short stories for people who have uh, mediocre uh, attention spans. I love the book Birds of America, which has nothing to do with Birds of America by Laurie Moore, a collection of short stories that every single one of them pierced my heart. And uh, when I was dating my now wife, I gave her that book and she said it pierced her heart. And I knew that that was, yeah, anyway, Birds of America by Laurie Moore, which most of you haven't read. It's really beautiful. Awesome. Thank you. Okay, question number five. This one's about travel. So you've traveled around the world as we've discussed. What's one thing you do when you travel? One travel hack, something you take with you or something you do that makes your travel less painful or more enjoyable? Well, um, so my daughter just gave me this haircut, but I have a long tradition of getting a haircut almost everywhere I travel. I find it to be, so I go to the most local place possible. Think about this. a haircut, it's like someone, a stranger puts their hand on your head. Uh, and intimate. you have, it's pretty intimate, right? It's intimate. And you have to talk to that person, even if you don't have three words in common and there's going to be locals around staring at you because you're sitting in the chair and usually tourists don't go there. I love to get my haircut. It is like, it's better than going to a bar late at night. It's just like, it's like, it's people, tourists don't do that. I don't care what my hair looks like. I'm halfway bald anyway. You can, it's not really like, you're not going to mess it up. And I always meet someone. Uh, it's daring to sit in that chair. There's a razor at your throat. You know, uh, I love getting my hair cut. I will learn. To, it's relaxing too, because if my accent's terrible, the barber doesn't freaking care what my accent sounds like. And he's going to laugh and I'm going to laugh. He's going to teach me five new words. I'm going to learn some great swear words and I'm going to, and I'm going to ask where the locals go and he's going to tell me. And and next thing I know, my trip has started. I love getting my haircut when I travel. That is awesome. All right. Question number six, what's one thing you've started or stopped doing in order to live or age well? Oh, this is a good question. I stopped playing ice hockey. I love ice hockey, but I'm 52 years old and I'm not really that coordinated or big. And I'm playing with guys that are literally half my age. And I had to stop to be able to, like I was getting into a car crash twice a week. Uh, So I stopped playing ice hockey and I can almost barely watch ice hockey because you have things in life where you're like not that good at, but you love. It's really relaxing because I'm not that good at hockey. And I love, I love ice hockey. It's just something, it's like when, 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 when I was reading Harry Potter to my children, I never read Harry Potter when I was a kid, I was too old, but I read it to my children out loud. Uh, They were talking about Quidditch. And I realized that Quidditch for me is ice hockey. You can go like three times faster than you can run. You can stop on a dime. You could, you could go backwards. I'm a good skater. I'm just kind of not that coordinated or big. Uh, and so to quit hockey as a realization that I'm a little too old to play rough and tumble hockey and my knees are messed up with answers to your question. So ice hockey. <laughs> I'm, right. I'm sad about it still. And I think I read that you do love to run long distance, but I think one of your social media posts talked about your knees are shot. 
Yes, um, I would like to also thank the portion of my body below my neck uh, for putting up with me. Uh, the upper part is still working fairly well, uh, but the lower part was abused by the upper part. So, you know, I'm very, I was very curious about the limits of human endurance when I was in my 20s, and I decided that I would be my own laboratory, and I wanted to, uh, again, I'm not really a talented athlete at all. I'm just, I, I like to call myself sporty, <laughs> sporty. I'm like enthusiastic. Uh, anyway, I wanted to see if I could run 100 miles in one day. They have these 100-mile runs. It's four marathons, but it's up and down mountains, so it's really much harder than four marathons in one day. And I wanted to do it in under 24 hours. And uh, usually I don't pat myself on the back for my own athletic achievements, but I'm going to right now. I ran 100 miles in 23 hours and 48 minutes and effed up my knees quite oh. badly. I've never run well since then, but it was like this incredible experience where I was, I went like, so you know, by the way, people out there, so if you get tired and then you get really tired, then you get exhausted, then you get super exhausted, then you get super insanely exhausted, and then you feel like a deity. There's something deep, deep, deep in there. You feel like, boom, and I reached it. It was great. It was crazy. Oh what, that is incredible. What was the event? It was the Western States 100 mile run. It takes place in California each year. I actually had to run 50 miles to qualify for it. Um, and it was, uh, you run all through the night. Uh, you get to have a pacer. My younger sister, my only sibling is really accomplished athlete. She's the athlete in the family. She ran the last 38 miles with me. You know, people get, they hallucinate and run off the course. And so you, and you're in the woods at night. So she guided me, but uh, you have to carry your own water and food. You, you, you know, I like, I'm not going to cheat in a hundred miles. You're only doing it for yourself. Um, but she was with me and uh, uh, yeah, it was, it was a, it was soulful experience, but yes, it's the reason why I'm a little, it was bad for your, it was bad for your body. Ooh. It's like, yeah. it was like some sort of overdose on drugs, but I overdosed on running. That is hardcore. Holy cow. <laughs> a little ridiculous. Yeah. Um, just on the Harry Potter thing for a moment too. I also, I didn't read it when I was younger. But I read it last year during the pandemic to my girls uh, who were 13 and 8. And we read the whole thing out loud. And it took the better part of a year. That's amazing that, that we did that same thing. And you know that that series, I looked it up. It's just over a million words. I think it's a million 74,000 words. That's incredible. Yeah, I'm, not, I'm certainly not going to do any literary criticism when it comes to Harry Potter. But maybe if you're like me, I really like reading out loud. I really do. In fact, uh, again, this is... I don't, I wonder if I've ever said this in an interview. So one of the things I do with my own writing is read it out loud to myself. And, you know, sometimes my family is outside my office door. There's five of us in a relatively modest house and they hear it. And I'm, I'm not shy about it. Like, I feel that if the rhythm, like I will find like little, like what I call splinters, where it's just like you, your voice stutters. And sometimes it's even two words that have a similar sound that you didn't notice it when you were just reading silently. I read everything I write out loud. Um, even when I'm crazy and feeling it's wrong, I will tape record it and play it back and find mistakes. Uh, so anyway, I, how beautiful that you also read Harry Potter. Yeah, I read every word out loud to, in fact, to my daughter. Uh, I have like books that I read with everyone. It's a little one-on-one, -on -one, but yeah, every page of the seven volumes. Um, and uh, that was a per that's the perfect way to encounter Harry Potter if you're over the, you know the age of eighteen or something like that. So, yeah. all right, that's cool. I could talk to you about this for a while. Not the actual books, but the actual interaction with your child about sharing something like that is I find that touching. Yeah. So I know 
exactly what you did. That's great, man. Yeah, it was fun. A lot of great vocabulary in those books too. Good vocabulary, just like references. Like, should we break out the sorting hat? You know, it's like like you can make like you can like take things from the books and bring them. In. You know, it's just like how many Shakespeare expressions like have sort of like leached into the language. You know, there's a Harry Potter. There's an entire generation that read that book, and so if, like if you don't, you know, if you don't know what Ravenclaw is, then you're like a little too old. Like I didn't, no. I didn't know what the four houses were until I read them. So I'm I'm kind of like. There's a lot of like little Harry Potter references. Any modern sitcom today will like throw in a Harry Potter reference as of course you know it. And I'm like, I'm feeling yeah. like, glad I know that. The muggles at least, right? Or something. Of course, mudbloods, muggles, you know, anything. Yep, yeah, of course. That's awesome. Okay, question number six. I'm seven. Question number seven. What's one thing you wish every American knew? I wish every American uh, knew how to speak another language. Why? Oh, I'm just, I was just stopped. I was lightning round. I finally got all lightning about it. <laughs> um, well, I didn't actually speak another language until uh, five years ago. So it's not like I'm, I'm bragging on anything uh, because, wow, it just, you know, there's travel, right? There's travel. And then there's, you know, I mentioned going to a barbershop, but I'm talking about like you learn another language and then suddenly you can really learn about another culture and world. And now, yes, we can go to England and speak English, but really it is so nice to learn another language. It changes, it rewires your brain a little bit. And, you know, I read about uh, four books saying that, you know, after the age of 17, you can't learn another language. And after the age of, you know, 40, forget it. And I started French at 45 and my French is bad, but it's pretty damn good bad. And um, now I can go to a dinner party and speak French and make jokes I'm freaking fluent. I'm proud of myself. It was very difficult and uh, it changed my brain and opened up like a whole nother thing. There is just no way if you force a French person to speak English that you will really truly get to know them. And so I think it is wonderful. Yeah, that's awesome. What a great answer. And I love that. Um, what's the, so question number eight, what's the most important or useful thing you've ever learned about making relationships work? I'm going to answer this with one word, listening, 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 listen, listen. I think the secret of being a journalist is to listen. Um, you're interviewing me and I'm like very conscious of hogging this up because I'm used to being the person who speaks less and 97% of the time, except for in these situations. And I'm uncomfortable or at least conscious, which means uncomfortable of speaking more. I like to listen. Uh, someone who's trying to f show off or fill in, like just listen. Um, you know, even if you totally disagree with someone and they're completely wrong, which by the way, you know, happens all the time in my house, there's a reason why they're saying that. So listen, even don't just dismiss it. Yeah, the words might be crazy. But there's a reason why they're coming out of this person's mouth, my whether it be it my child or my wife or someone that I have an intricate relationship with. And uh, anyway, just listen and then react. Just take it in. Listen. Awesome. And question number nine. Aside from compound interest, what's the most important or useful thing you've ever learned about money? What's the most important thing I've learned about money? Did you say? Um, yeah. Well, it's kind of like, you know, running, it's kind of like running a race, you know, you can be like, 
there could be like 900 people behind you, but you're only looking at the 10 people in front of you. Oh, someone's always going to have more of it. There's never enough. Um, I used to be like very safe. I used to be a little bit, I wouldn't say cheap, but like, you know, you got a little money, you want to hold on to it. Um, money actually doesn't do anything for you. It's what you can buy with it. What's the most important thing I've learned about money? Spend some of it, not wisely. Spend some of it, not wisely, you're saying? Not wisely, yeah, yeah, blow some of it. Yeah, like gamble a little bit or just buy something, that you, just some of it, some of it, not wisely. Give away 10% and blow 10%. The other 80%, you can be very cautious about. 10% donate, 10% spend unwisely. I think you're gonna really remember that unwise 10% and also the donation of 10% too. I like that. So that's the 20% that's important. The 80% that's paying your bills and your mortgage, ho-hum. The donations and the unwiseness. Spend some of it unwisely. What's an example of how, like a specific example of how you've spent money unwisely or an example of how you do? Well, um, I, uh, I, this is not unwisely. You know, I'm, I'm living in France right now and I don't like reading books on a Kindle. And so I can get a book on a Kindle that I'm interested in, in like 10 seconds for $12. But instead, I'll spend $50, 25 of which is for postage to get it mailed to me so I can read it on paper. And I don't feel like that's a waste, but I like to read books on paper, you know, sometimes with a hardcover. And can I get it cheaper? Yeah. Uh, is it exactly the same words? Yeah. But um, I find it it fulfills me a little more and therefore it's not a waste. Um, uh, you know, we're in France, you know, uh, you can buy, you can buy a, an expensive cheese. Why not? You don't have to, you know, some things just, just, you know, I, I, I'm not trying to sound like someone who's well off, although I am certainly blessed. Um, but, um, I think those are the things you'll remember just to, just to, if there's something that's sort of like, Inefficiency, we have a little joke in my family when it comes to this money is like, um, because three children and wife and moving countries and continents, uh, sometimes my, uh, my wife will be searching for something to be like, wait, wait, Mike, I found a less efficient way to do this. You know, I found, I, I found, I found a more ridiculous way to do this. You know, sometimes we'll literally like, I found a more expensive way to do it. Stop, stop. There's a more expensive way to do this. You know, that's sort of our little, our little in-family joke because uh, vacations get expensive and you got five people and everyone's going. So, you know, that'll be, like, ah, ah, don't do that. There's a more expensive way. So anyway, uh -huh. just make, make, uh, I think humor sans, I think humor also, by the way, you didn't ask this question. I just think a sense of humor is so important because life can be completely absurd. In fact, is. Yeah. Uh, and, uh, uh, you know, again, I, if you are blessed with good health, once you're feeling sick, it's so hard to have a sense of humor. But if you're blessed with good health and I can't tell someone have a good sense of humor. And I have plenty of friends that are, you know, depression, clinical depression. So I'm also blessed not to have that. Um, but uh, I love someone just... Man, if you can make a joke about almost anything, it's such a nice way to go about. Like a, a little levity almost like makes my day, my life, my week. Yeah, a little levity. Yeah. You didn't ask that question, but I answered it anyway. No, no, I and a lot comes up for me when you share that. And, and I know that your money is one of these areas where it's 
often a source of conflict in relationship, right? Money, sex, parenting, in-laws, there's these common themes, but if your family's able to laugh about these inefficiencies or whatever, and, and make light of that, what a gift, you know, like what a gift that you're giving each other instead of letting it be this yeah. point of contention. Brilliant. I like how open you are too about your family's money and where it came from. In fact, um, uh, if I can be so bold, I, you know, I was talking to my friends about the show I was going on before and I was speaking about uh, your family and how open you are on your, on your website about it and how, uh, you know, you're talking about your father, like literally working himself to death and just reading, you know, again, I'm a journalist, what happens when you have a journalist on the show, they're going to poke around and uh, listen to, I really love your show. I, I feel like, I feel like I have, I've, that's the reason why I'm feeling pressure because some of your guests are so fascinating and I feel a little unworthy. And so, uh, but I really did. That was the point of, I had a whole conversation with my children about money because of you. And so, oh. I, you know, I feel like you have a lot to say. It's, I guess that's the journalist in me. When you asked that question, I was like, I really want to hear from brilliance about, uh, <laughs> about that. Yeah. Well, my dad definitely had a set of lessons that he taught us formally and there's like five. You know, with him, it was decide what is sufficient for your needs. So he would say, make that as a conscious thing. And, and that led to the next one. He said, almost all of us are fortunate that as we get older, our incomes increase. He said, be careful not to let your, in, your expenses match your increasing income. Like be very deliberate about it. So that was a second. He would, he would pair that with where much is given, much is required. You know, quoting scripture about you have a responsibility, as you're saying, to, to share with others. So he would talk about that. And then he had this view. I love the way he'd say this, that money is nothing but numbers on paper and a tool for doing good. That was what, that was the way he looked at it. And, and I think that's not just something he's, he talked about, but, but how he lived. So there, those were definitely some things. And um, yeah, money's a fascinating thing, right? It's uh, a currency. He didn't, he didn't use these terms, but a friend of mine, actually my very first guest who wrote the book, The Soul of Money, Lynn Twist, she talks about it's not a coincidence that money is that we call it currency, right? In anything, whether it's water or it's vegetables or another food, if you hoard it and it, it stagnates, it decays. But when you let it flow, that's when, mm. you know, it works best in our lives. And I, I thought that was an interesting, really interesting yeah. law of reciprocity, you know, so then it gets into some kind of metaphysical realms, perhaps money is energy, money is agreements, you know, this kind of thing. But um, I do want to just say one one thing too on what you said about um, humor. A couple of things that came up for me when you were sharing. Um, first, I heard once, I didn't hear this directly in an interview or something, but I heard once that when the Dalai Lama was asked, what's the most important attribute in a spiritual teacher? His reply was a sense of humor. So, you know, right in, in line with what you're saying. And then and then I did have the good fortune to to go to a program Wayne Dyer hosted shortly before he passed. And, and he pointed out that the opposite of what did he say? He talked about dark and light, but also heavy and light and how lightness, when we bring that lightness and that um, levity, you know, that it really does in some kind of maybe metaphysical way, again, both dispel darkness, but also the heaviness that life can have, you know, the responsibility and the burden and all that. So I just love that, that you have that as part of your, your family culture and part of the way you see the world. I thought for what it's worth, I thought that was pretty cool. No, I was saying that I was actually thinking one of the most wonderful things in the world, and this might be cheesy, but I'm is like laughter. 
laughter. What a great thing. Just think about it. You just like make this crazy sound that comes out of your mouth. And it, when it's a real, when it's something truly funny and like everyone's just basically, you're basically all screaming together in a room. It's like really beautiful laughter, man. There's nothing else like it. Uh, um, and so when I'm with my friends and we laugh, that is like the best thing in the world. Yeah. Um, so that, that, if you can make, if you can make someone laugh, I think that's like second to sex in terms of intimacy. Like you can make someone laugh. That's extremely, I, luckily I'm able to make a few people laugh. I'm a little funny looking. So, you know, <laughs> maybe I'm just, maybe I'm just saying it's important because I could do it all right. You know, if I was really like a Lothario, I, you know, I had great hair. I'd be like, the most important thing is dancing in, you know, at a club. But uh, <laughs> anyway, I'm going to go with laughter. Right? As, as yeah. important. Awesome. Well, thank you. Okay. Well, this, the end of the enlightening lightning round, the, the way that I'll wrap this up on this portion in the last part, very, very near the end here, just we'll talk about writing and creativity for a few minutes, but before we do, I just want to share with you that, um, and speaking of money, I've made a hundred dollar Kiva micro loan on your behalf to a woman entrepreneur, um, named Nurgal, and she will use this money to buy dairy cows with the aim of increasing her income by selling organic milk. She actually owns two cows, 15 sheep, two horses, and she is located, Gal is in uh, Kyrgyzstan of all places. Somewhere I've never been. Have you ever been to Kyrgyzstan, the Stans? No, I've been to several of the Stans, but not, uh, I've been to Kazakhstan. Is that Kazakhstan? No, I've been to Uzbekistan and Tajikistan. Um, <laughs> When I was uh, covering the the Afghanistan, another stand war, when it got a little hot, you would have to escape to one of the other stands, which was like to have a breather. Uh, that sounds great. So Kiva is the um, is the what would you call it? The website, the company, the it is a nonprofit. They're based in San Francisco. There, it was founded by a couple of Stanford. Um, I believe they were MBA students about nearly 20 years ago. They had worked, one of them, I think, had worked with Muhammad Yunus when he earned the Nobel Prize for microfinance. Yeah, I love that. And so the cool thing about this to me is that this will help, this helps entrepreneurs become self-sufficient. So it's not charity with strings attached. Instead, it trusts that they have the knowledge and the capability to, to improve the quality of their lives. And then when interest is repaid, it doesn't come to me. It goes to the field partner who facilitates the loan. So it then is a virtuous cycle, not just for the entrepreneur, but also for the people who make loans to others in that part of the world. Cool. You know, the journalist with me always has pen and paper. So I've jotted that down. I'm looking forward to taking a look at that. I think I might double this uh, this uh, donation. I'm going to huh? go find it. Of course. Yeah, I'm, I'm pledging that right now. Send me the information. And now she's getting $200. That is so great. I will do it. I will send it to you. Awesome. Okay. So the last part of the interview is, uh, as I mentioned about writing and creativity, and, and we've already talked about some of these things. The place I want to start is with this question about when did you first know you were a writer and how did you know? Yeah. So this is a little bit of an annoying answer because, um, I speak to a lot of people, my friends included that all their lives aren't sure what they quote want to be when they grow up. So I'm just going to go with the annoying part, which is that I really have wanted to be a writer for a really, really long time. My mother showed me a journal I kept at age 10. Who says this at age 10 where I said I wanted to be a writer? 
And by the way, I also said that if that didn't work out, I want you to be, quote, a mad scientist. <laughs> so uh, uh, I'm really lucky that for some reason, and there's no writers in my family, um, I just lo I, I love to read so much. Um, kind of like, uh, <laughs> there's also another story in my family, again, a little bit annoying, where the English uh, teacher told my parents that your son reads too much. But because I would, I didn't really like discussing things. So I would like sit in back of the English class while they were discussing, say, Romeo and Juliet. And I would put another book in front of the Shakespeare and just be reading that instead of participating. And so I really liked to read. And I wanted to write for a, for a long time. I was on my high school newspaper and then my college newspaper. And then after that, and I thought it would be fiction. And so the only surprise that came was that I really found myself attracted to telling true stories with creativity because I truly love to travel so much and meet people. And as I said at the outset, you know, what you should try and do for a living, try, start that, start that as your, as, as, as your goal is what you love to do and would do if money wasn't an object, it wouldn't be nice to make that your job. And so uh, um, I always thought I would become a novelist and said, I, I, I write nonfiction and have found that to be really fulfilling. Wow. So for a long time. Awesome. Who has been influential in your development as a writer and what have you learned from them? Well, this is a sort of a category that doesn't get mentioned enough by writers. Uh, editors, wow, what an art. So it's, I am a bad editor. Uh, and what I mean by that is, uh, you know, a lot of people are like, oh, you're a writer, well, you read my stuff. And so when I read someone's stuff, I'm like, how would I have written that? Which by the way is, terrible if you're an editor, because that's not what an editor says. An editor is like, oh, how can Mike write that in the best, to the best of his ability? Uh, I have been helped by several fantastic editors. When I, my first ever job in journalism was at skiing magazine, because I know how to ski, uh, even bad knees and all. And there was an editor there named Paul Prince. And he was just a brilliant editor and like saw where I was showing off and saw where I was like saying something in 10 lines that should have just been given one line and just taught me about flow and like took a red pen fearlessly and just like said, this is terrible, rewrite it. And again, like if you're the type of person who wants to improve themselves, you have to be able to, you know, if you're getting paid for it, it's the big leagues. You have to, you know, that's part of the deal anyway great editors are the secret to good writing. And I've had, a, I've been blessed to have like three or four brilliant editors uh, and they're few and far between. So if you can find them, stay with them. Even if it's like at skiing magazine, I would, you know, I, I was actually offered a job at sports illustrated and turned it down. I stayed at skiing magazine because I wanted to be edited by this guy and he made me a better writer. Wow. Well, obviously experience working with someone can help you confirm whether or not they're a good editor or a good editor for you. But, before you enter into a working relationship, how can you know that someone's going to be a good editor? Hmm. I'm wondering if this applies to everyone. Well, I'm just going to answer it for myself. So uh, when I'm writing, I'm like, you know, oh, I wonder if that line is opaque or not clear. I wonder if that word is a little too show-offy. And then in three seconds, I'll be like, that line's not clear and that word's too show-offy. I'm like, shit. That little voice, like he basically echoes the voice in your head, like all your like all your little fears that you think you're going to cover it up. 
they know it right away. So that's my little test. Like, oh, you're right. I knew it. I knew it. I knew it. And like, and then it goes from there. Then he's like, and also, Mike, you know, this is repetitive. This character is not important. And you got to stop quoting this person who's saying that, you know. So it starts out with like, they echo the little voice of uncertainty in your head and confirm it in a little way. So it's like, oh, you, you changed the word, you, you know. So that's my litmus test is that uh, my little, they are like, oh, did you crawl into my head? And were you that, you know? So uh, that's my test for editing. Right on. What, what is some of the most important, what are some of the most important tools or technologies that you use as a writer? I write on a computer. I never really, uh, I grew up in the transition from paper to computer. I like a digital recorder. I mean, I really actually, it's, I feel like, I'm, you know, I've got a bunch of people that are in like film and photo and like they're really high tech. I'm not really that high tech. Uh, I use a, th a thesaurus more than most people just to check when I'm like sort of like really fine tuning. I'll like look up like the most random words, strong, you know, just like I know a lot of synonyms for it. I just like to sort of see. Um, I don't really think that writing needs very many true tools, but I like writing on a computer because um, unlike paper, you could, like, if you have like a weird idea, like what if I change all these paragraphs and delete all this stuff, you just save it as it is and then do all that really quick and then see how it, see how it goes. You're like, oh, it didn't work at all. And then write back that quickly. Uh, so that way you get to like uh, experiment with all the, like, the weird iterations as i repeated uh, earlier said earlier um i try make my writing feel very natural and conversational but it does actually take me quite a lot of drafts to do this um i will actually say i, I and i think this is probably unknown like i will always do 20 drafts of something i'm writing that's a two zero 20 drafts where it's like a lot literally, of literally 20 drafts Sure. Sure. Wow. Yeah. So I've changed. I move with things like it doesn't come out beautifully at all the first time. And you know what the funny thing is? I freaking psych myself out every time that's going to be perfect the first time. And it, the 19th time, maybe it is. Yeah. That, <laughs> you know, that calls to mind for me is that Oscar Wilde saying about I've been editing all day in the morning. I put a comma in and the afternoon I take it out. Oh, I love Oscar Wilde, man. I yeah. love him. So, I like, I don't even make me think about him because I think about Oscar Wilde too much because, uh, and then he makes me feel unwitty. I'm like, dang, he's so, so it's like, I almost get mad. This is, ask my children, what's the reaction that your dad will have when he truly thinks something's great? And the, uh, just in terms of writing, they'll be like, he'll be angry. <laughs> so like, I'm like, oh, I'm pissed. It's so good. I can't do that. That's yeah, so Oscar Wilde actually makes me angry. Sometimes I won't read him because I'm, he makes me angry that I'm like, oh, I feel not very good. I, yeah. Sometimes I'll, this is actually another true story. I, I have like a bunch of really, I'm not going to name names. A lot of them are romance novels of terribly written books that make me feel much better about myself. <laughs> no, I'm not actually joking about this. I literally have some terrible books 
that uh, uh, for a while I got obsessed with Fabio, who was on the cover of uh, old uh, old school Fabio on the cover of, of romance novels. And so I just started collecting it as a joke. But um, and then I started reading the books that Fabio was on the cover and I felt very good about my own writing. So the opposite of Oscar Wilde. That is so funny. I, you know, we, we've all heard that thing. Who was it? I want to say, I forget who said that. I'm forgetting right now about uh, comparison is a thief of joy. Hmm. One I can't name that either, but somebody who was a president, uh, I, I believe. But at any, at any rate, it's funny that, that there are times where comparison can actually rob us of, of our peace of mind or whatever. But then there's other times when it's incredibly useful. Like, and I remember listening to an interview with a comedian, Greg, I forget his name right now, but he talked about the way he found the confidence to succeed in comedy was going to shows and seeing how bad other people sucked and went, well, I can do it so much better. So there are times where comparison is actually useful, I think. So yeah, again, you know, sometimes when people ask me, you know, um, I want to be a writer, but I don't know how I feel like not that um, skilled. I'd be like, you know, I might be dating myself a little bit, but I'd be like, pick up a magazine on the newsstand and open it up and read that article. Uh, and when you do that, do you feel like you're blown away? They're like, no, they're terrible. I'm like, there you go. You could be a writer. If you, you know, most of them are not very good. Thank goodness. It would be yeah. terrible if every single article was like brilliant. Then you would feel terrible. Anyway. Yeah, uh, totally. Okay. Uh, so the, the, the question here is about time. How do you manage yourself through time? How do you structure your time as a writer to help you hit your deadlines? Man, this is, I am really poor with time. Um, and I guess the, I guess the, I'm just discovering this right now during this interview. I guess I don't really want to be good with time. I just like, right now I was late getting on this show because I picked up my son. I kind of knew that it was going to be pushing things and I still did it. I thought like, I, 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 my time zone has 25 hours in each day. And it turns out that no matter how much I try and force it, there's really only 24. I think I'm the, I'm the, the only thing I'm good at is making people who are bad with time feel uh, like they have company. So don't ask me any questions about how to do, how to manage time because I'm really poor at it because I have a lot of interests and a lot of, when someone says they're bored, I'm fascinated by that because I would like to be bored because I'm 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 really tired of not being bored. Like like, like there's so much to do. The world is I, mean, I could read books. That's you know I could I could you know explore the world. I could hike. I could you know I could do like a hundred things. Um, all, I, if there were thirty hours in a day, I still wouldn't have enough time. Or fifty hours a day. So I'm terrible with managing time. I'm very fortunate to have a lot of enthusiasm for many things in the world. But um, <sighs> well, yeah, I, I'm not I'm giving myself no compliments for managing my time. I managed to get stuff done. Some of it's just out of pure fear. And by the way, let me just get, get back to one thing. Uh, when you were talking about your father's advice about uh -huh. don't, I was thinking number two, I believe, was uh, something about like, you know, you know, don't if you get if you're making more, don't, you know, don't spend more or something like that. Yeah, I totally failed on that one. In fact, it's even it's even worse, which is that, um, you know, oh, if this if this this art thief book is already sort of half spent and I haven't even written it. So if it's not good, I'm screwed. And so <laughs> so, so money management and time management. Mm, go ask. A, go ask a banker. Really, yeah. please don't ask me. Well, it's uh, you know, it's 
was it Tony Robbins says that every life is an example or a warning? (laughs) (laughs) And probably both. Yeah, many or both for sure. But this thing on time, I'm I'm interested because I hear this, what what occurs for me is a lot of self-criticism, a lot of judgment. But you still, as Steve Jobs said, real artist ship, right? You're you've got booked, you've got articles, you're making a living doing it. So you're doing something a single digit percentage of all writers are able to do. If you suck so bad with time, how is it that you manage to publish? I mean, you mentioned the word fear just a moment ago, but but you ship. How? Let me think about it. Well, I have, I guess I'm fortunate that I'm sort of um, self-motivated. I'm certainly, if I can compliment myself, I'm not lazy. Um, and I usually am very enthusiastic about a project. And by the way, you know, when you're slogging through a couple of year book, there's going to be terrible weeks, days, even months. Uh, but I am uh, motivated to finish it. And um, I prioritize, you know, I write ideally 13 out of 14 days. Um, I feel like um, I can write only, so, you know, don't, no one be impressed. Uh, I think really you can only do something great for three or four hours a day. I mean, really uh, any more than that. So if I, so I, I try and be, um, as I've said to my wife, and I mean this truthfully, I could ski half a day and work half a day and get more work done than if I just worked all day, which is true. Because uh, if I feel like if I exercise, if I have a moment of good fathership, uh, and then I get this four hour chunk, which I search for every day to work on my project, I really work so hard during those four hours. I'm like exhausted. Uh, I don't think the brain can go hard for more than four hours. And so um, I try and take a seven hour work day and do it in four hours. I feel like there's a little more to it than that, but really um, I get the project done because I don't mess around. And even if it's going poorly, I sit with my butt in the chair and I churn. And um, you have to be sort of, just because I'm bad with time doesn't mean I'm not dedicated or devoted. Like even when I ran that hundred miles, I trained every day, even if I was feeling bad. So I'm good at, um, I'm good at, Self-motivation. Yeah. Uh, so I, I, you know, I, there's something in there. I feel like a second draft for that will be better, but I do, I, 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 work, I work every day pretty, pretty, pretty hard on, on, on the, on my project. Um, and uh, always, yeah. And I feel like, you know, sort of this four hour thing is like, is good because you're not just working 10 hours. You're really going for it. Yep. And you know, I don't know a lot of writers and how they work. It's a little inside baseball-y thing. I, I, it, I hope what I'm saying might be helpful to some people, but if it's not at all, that's, that's fine. You know, it's like, I can't think about it. Like people that say they write at coffee shops, that's completely alien to me. There's just no way to write in a coffee shop. They can't write in a coffee shop. Let's just be honest. There's just too much stuff going on. That's just ridiculous. I, I reject that completely, but other people say they can. But I yeah, I, I'm with you on that. And and uh, in interviewing, so so much comes up for me, what you're sharing, but I don't know if you've seen that book, Daily Rituals by Mason Curry, How Artists Work. I uh, have not. I'm a little nervous about it already. No, I, it, a lot of what you're saying is really resonant with that because he does these profiles of, some of them are scientists, actually. He goes back and there's Benjamin Franklin and Darwin, and but then he looks at others like Victor Hugo and Joseph Heller and you know many other luminaries. And he looks at how did they organize their lives, their time? How did they work? And it's exactly what you're saying, that it was a, 
it was a smaller chunk of time, but it was something they were talented about, something they were passionate about. They did it over a period of decades. So it's, it's really interesting. And then, and then this other thing about like working in coffee shops or whatever, that's one thing that's endlessly fascinating to me is how we all do have preferences and we do all have strengths and weaknesses and just figuring out even what those are and then working with our strengths instead of always trying to compensate for our weaknesses. Because I didn't believe that books could get written in coffee shops, but now that I've interviewed about 150 authors and I ask some of them exactly how they did it or where they did it. And some of them assure me like, that's it. That's their thing. You know, it's a ritual and it's their happy place. And it's like, wow. Uh, I know. I mean, I'm just not able to not listen to the conversation of the person next to me. That's just something I listen to. Like I, so anyway, my, uh, my office is not what's behind me with all these fascinating little gigaws. Uh, I work like when someone says, Oh, let me see your office. It's like, there's no more disappointment possible. It's like, when I lived in Montana, it was literally a closet. It was the janitor's closet of an old elementary school that became artist space. And they were renting out classrooms. And I was like, Oh, can I rent, can I rent the janitor's closet? And they're like, we hadn't even thought of that. This is a true story, by the way. They were, uh, they were like measuring by the, the rent was by the square foot. And, um, I think my first year's rent was $16 a month. Uh, and I immediately wrote a check for the whole year. And I just took off the big door and I bought a door with a window in it. So at least had a window, but it was like a metal door, like literally, and I put a nice light fixture. And then even with the window, I put a shade over it. I like to write in a closet. Uh, and then I, you know how uh, baseball players, they have this batter's eye. There's like a, there's black, there's like blackness. So they can see the ball. Like you can't even have like see people sitting in center field. I call it my writer's eye. I cannot have, I, if there's a window, I will cover it. If there's like peripheral vision is good. Like I don't want anything in my peripheral vision. It's all blank. I will have a huge semicircle of research behind me, but all I have is my computer, white space. I don't want to freaking see the beach. Don't show me the beach. That's, that's torture. Um, and I will light a single candle. By the way, this candle right here is lit. That's some serious stuff. When I light the candle, I can't even make my finger touch it. It's just mirror, mirror stuff is ridiculous. Oh, yeah. there I did it. I just, I, I actually just, I just pointed to that camera by thinking I was going to make a candle. I think I was going to make a joke by pointing in the wrong direction. I actually just pointed it. So by the way, I was actually, I just cracked myself up. I thought I was gonna actually point somewhere else. Never mind. Um, so I have a blank white walls. I really, I believe that once, even with nonfiction, let alone fiction, the words are generated between the ears and anything else is a distraction for me. And I will play white noise, no music ever. I'll just listen to the music. I'll put, I'll put a fan on just to make white noise. Uh, and that's it. Oh, right on. What? Let's see. So last, I think these are my last two questions for you. One is, it's potentially a big question, Hold on. but it's a, would you give us the thumbnail, like sketch out? How do you take a book from the idea to published book? What's your process? Yeah, that's, yeah, so I'm writing nonfiction, so I find it to be um, I'm not going to say easy, but it's told. It has a pattern, and this is the thing I like most. I think I've touched on this before. How important the topic is, and this, this is what I like about my process is that the very hardest part of my entire book process, which takes me four years, is the first part. So once that's done, everything is easier. 
do I have to keep saying for me? Just everybody listen. For me is the way every sentence really ends, but I'm not going to just keep saying it for me. Anyway, I once I have the topic, like the art thief or the hermit, and he's agreed to talk to me, then everything else to me is easier. And so then I do one year of reporting, approximately. I will go and visit uh, the art thief seven or eight times, you know, uh, travel with him, you know, and then I do one year of research and one year of writing and one year of editing, which I talked about how important it was, rewriting. And so those are my four parts in a nutshell for nonfiction. Okay, that was truly a thumbnail. Just thinking about if I wanna ask about how you stay organized, how you group research, how you collect stories, how you outline, uh, like any, anything like that coming up that might be. Yeah, I'll tell thing. you one thing, one little thing that not very many people know about. It. It's called my block of granite. Now, you know, we've spoken for, gosh, 17 hours already. I feel like we know each other. Yeah. Um, uh, so, you know, I've, I feel like uh, even just like kind of watching my own damn face on this video, it's like I feel like I do have a busy sort of disorganized head. And as you could tell, that's why I want white space and, uh, and uh, not a coffee shop. It's not that I can't concentrate. It's just that a lot of things are interesting to me. And so this is what I do to write a nonfiction book. And I really don't know if anybody else does this. After all, the year one, the reporting, year two, the research, there's actually a little step in between the research when that's all done and the writing. And it's called the block of granite. Um, my, uh, some of my editors know about that. Oh, I finished the block of granite, which is I literally without any editing or worrying about flow or words, write down absolutely everything that I've learned research wise or reporting wise, or just in my own head about the subject and I'll write and write and write and write and write and write. And I'll just even, you know, just even sometimes cut and paste like dictionary or encyclopedia entries. And it's generally chunked out in just like generally with the order I want to put it in. And that takes months. And my last chunk of granite for this current um, art thief book was, there was an exact number that I sent to my agents, like 2,200 single spaced pages. I did not print it out and waste a whole tree, but it was there. And that's like literally everything that I have. And I think of myself as a sculptor, really, this is actually uh, how I think of it. Not a, 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 I don't know if I've actually talked to this very often. And, and so that's everything. That is my block of granite. And then I chisel the book out of it. It was 2 million plus words. And I actually like my books to be extremely short. So from those 2,200 pages, I will cut out 2,000 pages. I'll keep 200. And the wow. rest goes on the floor. So I feel sort of comfortable. I feel like I'm less creating than... God, almost the word destroying, but it's not really the way it works, but I am basically pulling shit out that's not good and finding the gem the, that's in that 2,200 page block of granite. And that's just makes my head feel comfortable. Like um, before I did block of granite, I felt when I was writing that I was hope, like, don't forget, don't forget that part and don't forget that part and hold on to when that comes. And then it, it was sort of, I had no flow 
because I was too busy trying to remember that. And then I basically put everything out on paper and then my mind is, I got nothing else in my head. I, my mind is blank and uh, it's all in the block of ground. I don't have to remember anything. It's already there. And that allows me to write with levity and lightness and flow. That's me. That's awesome. Yeah, that's that for me coming up, right? The Michelangelo quote about just saw the angel in the marble and carved until he was free kind of thing. Precisely that kind of thing. Yeah. And then what was the other one? Is it Faulkner? Was it kill, kill your darlings? Yeah. There's a lot of them, you know, there's a lot of those great quotes. You know, if you come across a phrase that you especially like, be sure to strike it out first, you know, it's like, yeah, it's that effect. Sorry. Yeah. I love what you're saying. And, and even the David Allen, his whole getting things done. I don't know if you ever learned that system of person. It's like productivity, but he talks about when you get things out of your mind, then you're no longer like you're able to be present and you're able not to worry. And I love your block of granite approach of knowing that it's all there. And at some point you're going to deal with it, but you don't need to try to hold it mentally together now. Right. I think the bigger takeaway might be like, everyone has to deal with their own weird brain themselves. Like I'm the, I, I make like a list of a to-do list almost every morning. And that way I don't have to remember what I'm apt to do. I just write it down. Yeah. <laughs> just things like that. Just like, cause I just don't like to have to hold um, ridiculous things in my mind. Like pick up my child at five 30, like I got to keep, it's going to keep playing in my mind. But if I write it down, there it is, you know, or even like set a little alarm on my phone and then I, Oh, I don't have to think about it. The thing will ring. So uh, I find, I find freedom in that. Some other people, you know, whatever, they have their own tricks. Well, Mike, the last question I have for you here is what advice or encouragement do you leave people listening with that will, now that I'm asking the question, I'm inclined to, to, to ask it in two parts. Cause there's one that's what's your advice and encouragement specific to writing something that might help them to get through that dark tunnel and actually finish their book and share it with the world. So is there advice and encouragement specific to writing that you would offer? And then the broader one is what's the advice or encouragement or what are the final things you'd leave our listeners with? Okay. For writing with the caveat that I am not really an editor as we've talked before, I like to read. This is what I, this is what I like to, you know, people that say they want to write a book or, uh, they sometimes think that you have to use like big words or be complicated. So this is what I recommend. Again, I do a lot of drafts for your first draft. Uh, it works for me, uh, which is that I am, you can use a restaurant, but I like to say a bar. I'm sitting at a bar with my friend and he or she says to me, what's this? What are you writing about? And that's the answer. Oh, there is this guy. It could be just, there is this guy. Just type that out. Don't worry about it. It's your first draft. You know, he's an art thief. He was incredible. I, you know, met, just be like, you're just tell the story. Like you're speaking to a friend. It will come out very naturally. Don't try and sound like Faulkner or hit the thesaurus. Just tell the story like you're telling it to a friend. Don't worry about anything. And you will be surprised at how good it is. And the reason why it's good is because it sounds like you, not anyone else. And you could even start out, there was this guy, which is not a good opening line, but it's perfectly fine for your first draft. So just tell the story to your friend. You can even, and I have done this before, literally do that and put on a tape recorder and literally go to a quiet bar. You don't want too much background noise and tell your friend the story. And that's the way you get the first draft. Just tell your friend the story. That's what your readers are gonna be. Nobody wants to hear 
you know what? There's already Ernest Hemingway. We don't need another one. Be yourself. <laughs> right. So the only way, and, and be yourself is terrible advice because how the hell do you be yourself? Just tell the story to your friend at the bar and see what happens for your first draft. That's my writing advice. And then what's the other one? Life advice? Well, not necessarily even advice, but just final, final thoughts, final words. You know, now that we've talked for nearly two hours, and again, thank you for being so generous with your time and sharing of your experience and, and your insight. But just at the conclusion here of the conversation we've had, what do you leave our, our listeners with? I'm thinking that, um, I don't know why this jumped into my mind, but I'm thinking that you have to forgive yourself. And what I mean by that is uh, if you're anything like me, uh, you know, you strive to be um, a good father, a good person, and you feel like you didn't quite succeed. And uh, I think you have to, I think kind of the secret to sort of getting through life with a decent attitude is to be able to shake the etch-a-sketch to say like, okay, I tried to be a perfect person and failed for the 10,000th day in a row um, and um, going to start again tomorrow. And so there's this like, forgive yourself if you have good intentions and you fail, that's fine. And then, Man, if you mess up, I think it's nice to call up and say so. Um, and that took me a little while to learn. Also, I'm, I could be very stubborn. So I guess forgive yourself, but also when you do mess up, go pick up the phone and acknowledge it. It's amazing, amazing how like people will change. I've had like the worst fights with someone and like, ah, and then I call up, it's like, listen, man, I'm so sorry. I was just, and it's like, boom, on a dime, like all this, it's incredible. I've, I've experienced it time and again. And you think we will never speak again. We're done forever. I rend my garment. And you're like, oh, my God, I feel terrible. And you're like, they're just going to hang up on me. This, this woman's never going to talk to me. And I say, listen, I'm really sorry. And it's just like all melts. It's kind of amazing. People are ready to forgive. Yeah. Well, thank you for sharing that. Wow, brilliant. Really, you are, you are actually a brilliant interviewer. Well, thank you. I've, I sure I enjoy it. And as I've already said a couple of times, I've loved this book and, and I learned so much and I've enjoyed the conversation we've had today. So um, I just leave the, leave you the listener with, with this, the stranger in the woods, the extraordinary story of the last true hermit. Mike Finkel is the guest, Mike Finkel, michaelfinkel.com. You can find his work there. This is a international bestseller for very good reason. So I hope you've enjoyed this interview. Thank you for listening. Hey, thanks so much for listening to this episode of the School for Good Living podcast. Before you take off, I just want to extend an invitation to you. Despite living in an age where we have more comforts and conveniences than ever before, life still isn't working for many people. Whether it's here in the developed world where we deal with depression, anxiety, loneliness, addiction, divorce, unfulfilling jobs or relationships that don't work, or in the developing world where so many people still don't have access to basic things like clean water or sanitation or healthcare or education or living in conflict zones, there are a lot of people on this planet that life isn't working very well for. If you're one of those people, or even if your life is working, but you have the sense that it could work better, consider signing up for the School for Good Living's Transformational Coaching Program. It's something I've designed to help you navigate the transitions that we all go through. Whether you've just graduated, gone through a divorce or you've gotten married 
headed into retirement, starting a business, been married for a long time, whatever. No matter where you are in life, this nine-month program will give you the opportunity to go deep in every area of your life, to explore life's big questions, to create answers for yourself in a community of other growth-minded individuals. And it can help you get clarity and be accountable to realize more of your unrealized potential. It can also help you find and maintain motivation. In short, it's designed to help you live with greater health, happiness, and meaning so that you can be, do, have, and give more. Visit goodliving.com to learn more or to sign up today.